0: May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So, week five in our series on Paul and his letter to the churches in Rome. Only two more to go after this, you'll be pleased to know. So what I've been uh, using to explore Paul's writings is not the only way to read Paul. There are a number of ways we can read Paul. But for me, this makes the most sense, and a lot of people that I've read over the last year or so getting ready for the series, Uh, I'm basing my comments on them, and they think this is the the best way to read it. So just to remind us, Paul is a Jew. Uh, A lot of people think suddenly he miraculously stopped being a Jew, but he was always a Jew. But he wasn't the kind of, let's keep every word of the Torah kind of Jew. He had been that kind of Jew. But he'd stopped being that kind of Jew, and now he was the, let's renegotiate how we read Scripture and the Torah in particular kind of Jew. Which makes him pretty radical to be able to say, let's rethink this. So he really wrestled with his Scriptures, which is Torah, Psalms, Prophets. Those were his Scriptures. And he didn't take them at face value. He wrestled with them. That's an important part of Paul that we often overlook. Now the important thing about Paul being a Jew is that he saw the world through Jewish eyes, and he understood history through Jewish eyes. So he, like most of his fellow Christians who were also Jews, understood the gospel within a Jewish way of seeing the world and seeing history. So it wasn't about going to heaven for them, still not for Israelites today, Jews today, The goal was the fulfilment of the covenants with Israel. And the covenants with Israel were about Israel, and in the end, Israel was blessed to be a blessing, so it was about the restoration of humanity and the renewal of creation. That's what all this was about. That's why for Paul, the physical resurrection was so important. It wasn't about a spirit going off to heaven. It was about the renewal of creation and the restoration of humanity here on this world. This is the only world for him. So, this is what I'm suggesting, is the theological framework that Paul is wor- working out of. And I think that Paul, and a lot of others think, that Paul makes a lot more sense when we read it, when we read Romans with these glasses on. So, just to remind us, Paul is writing to a divided church. There's a group of Jewish Christians and they think they're pretty special because they follow Torah and they've recognized the Messiah and they think the covenant has been fulfilled in that Messiah. And then there's a group of Gentile Christians and they think they're pretty special because they have recognized the Jewish Messiah and they understand that through this Jewish Messiah humanity has been restored and creation is being renewed and they are part of the special group and they don't have to keep Torah so they are super special. And for some reason, these two groups aren't getting on. You can probably imagine why they're not getting on, Torah being the big issue. And they both think they're both pretty special, and so they're at loggerheads. And so Paul is writing to them because he needs them to unite to fund and support his mission to Spain. And a church that's busy fighting over Torah is of no use to him. So he wants to offer them a framework by which... They can live and work together and support his mission despite their huge differences. He's not trying to get rid of the differences. The Jewish Christians aren't going to stop being Jewish Christians. The Gentile Christians aren't going to stop being Gentile Christians. He just wants to give them a way to live together. And so, as I said last time, we can see this in the structure of the letter, chapters 1 to 4, are all about the problem, the problem being the problem of sin, which came into the world through Adam, which uh, meant all humanity was under sin. Uh, Chapters 5 to 8 are how God's solution to that problem through God's faithfulness to the covenant, through the one faithful Israelite, Jesus. So the covenant has now been fulfilled. Creation can be renewed, humanity can be restored. So he talks about how through this faithfulness God then invites all of humanity, all of humanity to be part of God's work to restore humanity and to renew creation. Which raises a really important I'm not up to that, yet you can kind of just go back to Paul, that's it. Raises a really important question. What about Israel? They were the special group. They were the ones that the covenant was with. Has God ditched them? And if God has ditched Israel, how much can we rely on the faithfulness of Israel? Now, there's a whole lot of authors that would say, and that's what chapters 9 to 11 are all about, this question. Now, there are a whole lot of people who would say this section is of no, like they don't get why Paul wrote it. If you're reading this letter being about how God has sent Jesus so that God doesn't have to be angry with us anymore so that we can get into heaven, this group of chapters is just of no use. It doesn't fit anywhere. It's a kind of side argument. And there are lots of authors who will say, why did Paul write this? Like, who cares? But if the whole argument is around the faithfulness of God, this is the key question. Like the whole argument rests on how Paul deals with, what about Israel? Because if God is not faithful to Israel, if Israel is now cut out of all of this, then, well, how faithful is God? Can we rely on that faithfulness? Can we place our trust in this faithfulness? Or is it all a bit hokey? So Paul really needs to deal with this. He needs to deal with the issues around Who or what is God faithful to? He needs to answer the question, Can we trust this faithfulness if Israel seems to have been rejected? And so at the beginning of chapter 11, he clearly states this problem. Now you can put it up. Here it is. I ask then, Has God rejected his people? And then we have, I think the translators were a little bit English at this point. By no means. It's kind of understated really isn't it I don't remember much the Greek I did at theological college but I do remember this phrase it is meganoito and one of the official translations of meganoito which Paul uses quite a bit in Romans is hell no that is the official translation it's emphatic by no means it's so understated Hell no, no way on earth, no freaking way. That was another translation that was offered in the readings that I read this week. This week, it's really there. Stop. No, don't don't suggest that. So he's kind of he does this all the way through Romans. He kind of puts up a question and then he answers it. In this case, he answers it with two words: meganoido. Hell no. I myself am an Israelite. And then he goes on and talks about what that's all about. So the short answer for Paul is that God's faithfulness is absolute and trustworthy. But he goes on to acknowledge, and in fact we had a little bit from the beginning of the 11th chapter and a little bit towards the end of the 11th chapter today, uh, so the way that... It's kind of set out as a little misleading. There's a long argument before and in the middle of what we heard today in which Paul does acknowledge that most of Israel seems to have been unfaithful to God right now. They do not recognize the Messiah. And then he has a convoluted argument, which we're not going to get into in too much detail, but basically is saying through Israel's unfaithfulness, the door has been opened to the Gentiles. And that is why the Gentiles are here. And then he offers this beautiful image that by grace alone, by God's mercy alone, not by works, not by following Torah, not by anything we have done, but by grace alone, contrary to nature, God has grafted this wild olive branch, that is us Gentiles, into the cultivated olive tree to share the rich root of the olive tree. What an amazing image. Wow. We have been grafted into this old olive tree so that we might share in the food from the roots of that tree. It's just an amazing image. That too often we've let go of. And it has these kind of corollaries that go with it. That the Gentiles were not superior to Israel. Like those Gentile Christians were going, Oh, well, look at us. We don't even have to follow Torah, so, and we have recognized the Messiah, so we're special and we're better. And Paul is saying, No, no, just stick with the picture. I'll tell you when you can go on to the next one stop being so enthusiastic. <laughs> You're not superior. You have been grafted into this ancient olive tree so that you can feed off the roots from this olive tree. You are not to think of yourselves as superior to this olive tree. And you are not there because of your goodness or anything that you have done. You are simply there because of God's faithfulness, God's mercy, God's generosity. End of story. Stop putting yourselves on a pedestal. Now there are some things to note about this. The first is that everything is in God's hand. Everything, everything is in God's hands. Not in the hands of Israel. Not in the hands of the Jewish church saying, look at us, we're special, we're important. No, not in your hands. Not in the hands of the Gentile church. Not in our hands. In God's hands. God's hands alone. So what do we do with that? Well, we should be humble. Because it's not about us. It's about God and God's faithfulness. It's not about us at all. It's about God and God's faithfulness to the covenant, God's mercy, God redeeming all humanity and renewing creation. And this all, image also carries warning. Now you can put the warning up They were broken off, that is, the Israelites who have not recognized Jesus as the Messiah, because of their unbelief, their unfaithfulness. But you stand only through faith. So do not become proud, stand in awe. This is one of the reasons why I think these chapters are so important, because they carry this warning. Again, which we didn't listen here today, it got chopped out by the lectionary. You stand only in faith. Now with our theological lens on, which is partly because of Martin Luther, we think this is our faith. Because of our faith, we stand. But as I said in the the first or second of these talks, this can equally be translated to be about God's faithfulness. And actually in terms of the whole scope of the letter, it's probably more likely to be about God's faithfulness. You stand only through God's faithfulness. Doesn't that change things? Suddenly it's not about me. It's not about what I have done. This is about what God has done. So do not become proud, stand in awe. Trouble is, over the centuries, we have not taken that very seriously. We, the inheritors of this Gentile church, have not taken this warning very seriously at all. We have forgotten that we were grafted into Israel. And we started to think that we were really important. Much more important than the root. We thought we were special, better than everyone else. We thought it was all about our faith. We forgot that it was about God's faithfulness. And we have been so proud. We have not stood in awe of God and God's mercy. And too often the sense of specialness has become attached to our tribe. And we have used our faith to say that our Christian tribe is better than everyone else. That this Christian tribe was very, very special. And we've used this to justify horrific things over the centuries vaunting our specialness, punishing those who were not special like us. We became the centre of the story, not God's faithfulness. There are so many examples. Christian Europe's invasion of the Holy Land, which we call the Crusades. I just find it so sad that one of our rugby teams chose the name the Crusaders and have knights riding around, waving swords. What are we celebrating here? The entry of the Crusaders into Jerusalem where every Muslim, Christian, and Jew was slaughtered. Is that what we're celebrating? Because they were not special. They were not like those Western knights. They were different, and therefore they could be killed. Christian Europe's empires that led to genocides Across the Americas, Australia, all in the name of our special God, the pogroms against Jews for so many centuries across Europe, Christian Europe's enslavement of millions of Africans because we, Christian white people, were special and they were to be our slaves. The Church of England fighting Wilberforce in his efforts to end slavery because Europeans was better than everyone else, and God had ordained that black people should be slaves. The church in the southern USA justifying slavery and then justifying racial segregation, elements of that church still today struggling with that issue. Last Just a few months ago, the Southern Baptist Union, unable to clearly deal with that issue. The official Lutheran Church in Germany supporting the Nazis during the time of the National Socialist Government and their programs against Jews and homosexuals and gypsies and those with physical and mental disabilities sometimes supporting them and other times just being silent because we Christian Germans are special. And this week we saw what happens when we forget this warning with the President of the United States failing to condemn the rise of fascism and white supremacy in his own country, and, maybe just as disturbingly, his evangelical advisers remaining silent. Do they agree with him? Are they unable to offer another view? Or do they actually think that white Christians are special? The lure of being special is strong. Paul knew that. He knew his history. He knew Israel's history. He knew his own history. He had been a Pharisee. You don't get any more special than being a Pharisee. And he knew where that had led him. Away from God. He placed himself at the center of the story. And so he offers us this warning. He tries really hard to help those Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Rome to put aside their specialness and to see that this is all about God's faithfulness, not about them. It's all about God's mercy. It's all about God's compassion and goodness for all humanity and for creation. His desperate desire was for, for them to put that at the heart of their story and to see everything else through that. And so he ends this part of the letter with a great hymn, which again, we didn't hear this morning. Uh, you can put this one up. Hopefully you can read it. Elements of it have sneaked into our one of our liturgies. Maybe one that we might use today. I just need to check it. So what we're going to do to finish this is to just sit quietly and to read this. Quietly, slowly, prayerfully. To allow God to speak to us through these words. This hymn that Paul offers us. So instead of standing and saying together a creed, we're going to sit and read silently together these words of Paul. To hear Paul's invitation to us to let go of all, all that lures us away from God and God's faithfulness.